Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. Today, we're going to finish up that uh, podcast looking at that fifth domain that we talked about around core competencies, which is the prevention of chronic pain. So what we're going to do is look at the resiliency and the vulnerability factors that patients bring to us, and then we're going to get into some management and hopefully finish up this uh, podcast uh, looking at all the different factors that we talked about through the last three podcasts. So there's what the patient brings to us, which are their demographics. So this is their genetics and their biology. So we know that patients who are older have a higher risk of persistent pain. We also know that if they're coming to us uh, with a poor health status, they actually have a higher risk as well. And I guess one could look at the fact of whether or not that immune system is amplified when somebody is dealing with significant pathology. We know that women are more prone to developing persistent pain, and there are some linkages now around the neuroendocrine system, in particular around estrogen. So there's a lot of study that's being done in this area. There are also those environmental factors or the epigenetics they often refer to or these environmental cues. So we often hear uh, talking about uh, adverse childhood experiences. So this is where it becomes important around trauma-informed care. Uh, We can look at an environment where there is a lot of uncertainty and unpredictability. So if you have a child that may not have any significant adverse uh, effects that have happened, but has a very chaotic home life. Uh, So a lot of unpredictability and uncertainty. Mom's got to work full time. So maybe one of the older kids is providing the after-school care because the parent can't. So those may be factors that sometimes can contribute. So these chaotic home states. Uh, There can be issues around work satisfaction that can be a factor that increases the risk of persistent pain. So if someone is unhappy in their work environment, that can be a factor that contributes. If the individual is going through some stress litigation, that can also contribute to persistent pain. And also when, when patients Uh, are not understanding what's going on. So that level of education can be important in terms of how the information is provided to make sure that it is appropriate, uh, that it is not something that uh, um, they are going to be reluctant uh, to tell you if they can't read or write. And I've had that happen. So I always ask permission from patients, is it it okay if I give you some information? And is it it okay if I ask you, have you ever had, uh, how far have you gone to school and things like that? So trying to get a sense uh, without causing any shame or stigma, um, because you want to make sure that the information you're giving patients or the information that you're providing or asking, that that patient really feels confident and feels that it can trust you, uh, feels that they can trust you to provide that information without feeling shame. So we talked about the acute pain characteristics. We're not going to go into that today. Um, There are some psychosocial factors that can contribute. So this is the high baseline fear that we talked about, a huge predictor of who is going to get that persistent pain. And we do see these patients in our own environments. So it's important that we target that without making that patient feel more fearful or more vulnerable. And don't dismiss that fear. That fear is something that we need to help that patient recognize, but also help them find a way of managing that. And the scenario I gave many podcasts ago 
was the patient that was absolutely terrified of getting suturing and was just hanging on for dear life. So it's important that I don't do that procedure until I get that patient to that place of calm, have those conversations without shaming that patient. And in there in some situations when I'm doing procedures that I need to offer that patient any kind of procedural sedation if that's necessary. Um, we talked about the worst case scenario thinking. So that's the catastrophizing, you know, what habits and behaviors do they bring to the situation? So do they have any coping strategies that they've developed? And hopefully those coping strategies are healthy, that they're going to help that patient become more resilient and manage that pain experience. They can also have significant negative beliefs regarding their pain severity. Uh, they can perceive an injustice around how they're treated you know, throughout the healthcare system, and that's something that can amplify that pain system. So it's important to have an opportunity for them to uh, be able to talk about that, to be able to acknowledge that, help them work through what they need to work through regarding that experience that they feel uh, has been unfair to them. We talked about drug factors in the past, so we know that opioids can cause uh, central sense can cause sens sensitization or central sensitization. There are some immunotherapies that can do it. Uh, there are some HIV meds as well as some anti-malarial drugs that can actually sometimes contribute. And we talked about the brain factors, neuroinflammation, central sensitization. So all these different forces can come together to lead to persistent pain. So how we manage acute pain, so we're going to get into management now, really, truly matters. It so matters. So do we stop and listen? Do we validate or do we dismiss that pain? You know, do we say, just suck it up, that's the way it is? I mean, that that is so demoralizing and shaming to a patient who's struggling. So that patient will totally disengage with us. So it's important that we step back, especially if we feel that kind of energy coming into the situation, because we also may be having a bad day and we need to recognize that, but the patient doesn't need to be the one that has to take that on. So we know that poor management of pain can contribute to significant morbidity but that the overuse of medications, in particular high-risk medications, can also contribute to significant morbidity and death. So when I think about the high-risk medications that we hear in the noise, news all the time, it's opioids, benzodiazepines, those sedative hypnotics. So those things are really important. So we all have a responsibility to manage risk, right? So I would never give a patient Coumadin without having a discussion. So Coumadin is a blood thinner, warfarin is the other name without having a conversation with that patient around the risk of that medication and how I need to monitor that risk. I need to manage the expectations about what I think that medication can do. And remember, we are not trying to take pain away. In fact, what we're trying to do is improve function. So obviously, if that pain is shutting the patient down, we need to find a strategy. So it doesn't have to be pharmacotherapy. In fact, I'll share with you an approach that looks at all pain in general in terms of how I look at how I strategically approach that. So, But I need to manage the expectations for that patient. I also need to be very mindful of the habits and behaviors that I give the patient to manage their suffering. So if I, as a clinician, am endorsing short-acting opioids, and uh, that becomes a strategy that becomes very effective for the patient, but that patient is very reluctant to stop that strategy, then that becomes a little bit more difficult. So I need to set up an expectation that this would be very short term, that we wouldn't be leaving the patient on it long term. So I need to be mindful of how I'm framing some of these habits and behaviors that I'm going to give to patients and make sure I'm looking at habits and behaviors that look at the bigger picture, look at the long term management of that pain. 
So I also need to help them address those pain protective behaviors that we talked about in the last podcast that could be contributing to their pain. So my patient with the arm pain that that seems so long ago, a couple of weeks ago, you know, the fact that she is in that pain tuck, her shoulder is rolled in, her arm is tight to her body, that's going to create problems in other areas of her body. So I need to have that conversation with her and help her feel uh, safe in terms of how she can kind of move that arm um, and how she can be less protective physically uh, in how she's how she is uh, protecting that. So just to remind us in the pharmacotherapy, we talked about this in a previous podcast, and when we look at pharmacotherapy and treatment goals, if you're managing uh, acute pain, you'd like to get that 80% pain reduction, but really what you're trying to do is improve function, and you want to make sure you're minimizing sedation, because if that patient is sedated, we've actually made them worse. When we look at chronic pain and chronic pain flare-ups, we want to get that 30 to 40% pain reduction, but we want to avoid sedation and improve function. So if you think about it, acute pain and chronic pain are really about function management. They're not about pain management. And it's really important that I don't make that patient too sleepy. If I look at cancer pain or pain at the end of life, this is when I can get a little bit more aggressive. And I will tell you, it's so important to have that conversation with the patient because most patients who are living with life-limiting conditions don't want to be sedated. They want to be moving. But unfortunately, as the disease progresses, there may be some huge limitations on their mobility, meaning that their pain intensity increases with any kind of movement. But it's really important to have that discussion with the patient, to come together with that patient, to kind of make a decision about how we want to proceed. So my goal in this population is about an 80 to 90% pain reduction, knowing that I may cause sedation and knowing that I may compromise function, but that is not my goal. And my goal is to be very collaborative with that patient and to have those discussions uh, because most patients who are living with life, just like we would, if we were living with a life-limiting condition, we would want to stay connected and engaged in life for as long as we could. What I have found in my work as a palliative care physician is that oftentimes when patients become less mobile, Um, what starts to happen is that uh, they become a little bit more disconnected. Um, But it doesn't take long before we start to see the end of life. So humans are generally very motivated to keep moving uh, and to stay connected. That is just the nature of human uh, connection. So we talked about those pain protective behaviors that we want to address. And maybe for some patients, getting that upright walker might make a huge difference. The problem is, is if the patient has a condition like spinal stenosis, and also some of our elderly patients who have been in these pain tucks for years and years and years, you probably are not going to be able to reverse that. So getting them upright may be actually more painful. They may be in these fixed positions, especially with their knees a little bit bent. This is where we need to get a physiotherapy in here, and we can help uh, set those realistic expectations with other team members as well. So a general approach to all pain, in my view, starts with our talking points. It starts with communication. And this is where we need to be reframing pain. We need to be looking at uh, some therapies such as cognitive behavioral therapy. Lots of literature is pointing in that direction. So our talking points and our communication is by far the most important uh, approach that we need to um, master and, and to develop. 
So after that, I start looking at interventions. So those interventions may be blocks, they may be splinting, they may be canes and walkers. I mean, these are the, all the things that I kind of look for. The other thing that I would suggest is that if you're dealing with certain cultures around this, like First Nations, is you want to look at culturally sensitive kinds of therapy. So the question I love asking patients who are from different cultures is, how do you find that place of calm in your either religious background or in your cultural background. So, you know, it's kind of interesting to me in the Catholic population is that the rosary can be a form of meditation that gets people to calm. So it can be all kinds of different things, but it is important to, to look into their culture as well because you may find some keys that may and tools that may actually come from that are very specific to their life experience. After, so talking points first, uh, interventions, alternative therapies. So this is when you get into massage, you get into Tai Chi, Qigong, all these different therapies that help the brain feel that you're moving in a very safe, flowful kind of way. And what that does, it changes the pain chemistry, but it also helps the brain understand that you are moving because if you're not moving at all, the pain gets more alarmed. So looking at alternative therapies, it's going to vary for each person. Think of dogs, right? Think of pet therapy, music therapy, art therapy. There's all kinds of beautiful stuff out there that can help patients find that place of calm. That, then your pharmacotherapy comes next. And after your pharmacotherapy, I think of risk stratification. So if I'm using high-risk pharmacology, I want to make sure I'm risk stratifying that patient. So that's a general approach to all pain. So you start with your talking points. It's about reframing pain, uh, looking at cognitive behavioral therapy. Then I'm looking at interventions, alternative therapies, pharmacotherapy. And then my last step is to look at risk stratification. So pharmacotherapy can be complicated. We're not going to spend a lot of time with this, but there's a lot of different choices out there. The problem is, is that the um, evidence, especially in chronic pain, it's really not that good. And a lot of these medications can contribute to sedation. So there is some good guidelines. You know, if we look at the Canadian Pain Society around how we should kind of think about introducing some of this pharmacotherapy, um, and uh, so when we look at things like, you know, tricyclic, the anticonvulsants, um, then you can get into some of the broad spectrum antidepressants. Uh, then you can get into some opiate analgesics. Uh, then tramadol is still listed there, although there is some lots of literature that's coming out about some of the harm that tramadol may be having. And we need to talk about this more. And I'd love to be able to do an individual pass, po podcast just on tramadol. When we look at opiate analgesics in the chronic pain population, um, there is a lot of controversy. But the question in the acute pain population is that should we be using them? And the answer is it depends. If the pain presentation um, suggests that the patient may benefit from um, using an opiate analgesic or if the patient sees that as part of a goal for them, that's important. There are many patients that do not want to use opiate analgesics. Now, what I try and explore with that patient, because often they have tremendous fear because of the new uh, media push around addiction. And we do see this in the palliative care populations. So I really help patients understand how we balance risk. And if they have any children or any concerns within their home uh, of a child that is either had uh, addiction in the past or that it's a high-risk environment, what we can do is talk about strategies, how we can keep that family safe, how we can minimize those medications getting into the community. So 
we can look at them in different ways. So we want to make sure that we've got the right patient, the right condition, and the right amount of time that we're dispensing them. So they can be used. I mean, it's it, 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 they're very effective, actually. I couldn't do my job without them. But I often don't see them as the primary approach. I don't see them, I see them as a, as sort of a, uh, like a co-analgesic. Like co so I'm using other things on a regular basis and then maybe adding in the opioid as a, as a, a PRN basis. Now it's very different in patients who are at end of life. So I, I want to make sure that we're not talking about end of life patients. We're talking about acute pain at this time. So we want to make sure we have the right patient, the right condition, and the right amount of time that we're going to dispense it, and not to see it as the only opiate analgesic that we're going to use. Now, there's been some recent uh, literature around uh, acetaminophen, and this is the PACE trial. I still use acetaminophen. I always tell patients there's a reason why Tylenol gets added into pain medication is that it is an analgesic. And for some patients, there is some anecdotal evidence that it does benefit them. So I might put them on a regular dose of Tylenol and then adding in a PRN dosing of uh, an opiate analgesic. Other aspects of the opiate analgesic that become important is understanding that they come in many, many forms, right? So short-acting, short-acting would be something like codeine, would be something like hydromorphone, would be something like morphine. And then there's the long-acting, right? So this is where you see the cons added, hydromorph cont, uh, you know, oxycodone, oxycodone, oxycont. Uh, you can be looking at things like methadone. Uh, so these are long acting. They each work differently. They're all mu agonists. They all activate the uh, mu receptor. Some of them are what we call dual active. That means you've got Tylenol added in. You've got SSRIs added in, SNRIs added in. So SNRI would be something with tramadol. Uh, SSRI, believe it or not, methadone has uh, also has that property. Um, the some of them actually stimulate the receptor and some of them actually dampen it down. So when we think about dual active um, uh, opiate analgesics, uh, I think of things that are agonist antagonist would be something like uh, meparidine, which is that we don't use that anymore. The other important piece of looking at opiate analgesics is that there are some properties. So when you think about how they work in the brain, they not only can actually dampen down that pain experience because they target in on that alarm system that looks at pain, but they can also stimulate the pathway that actually causes uh, energy or euphoria. So this is what makes them very dangerous. So we talk about non-euphoric and euphoric opiates. Now, all of them have the potential to do it, but some of them, some of them are more likely, like something like oxycodone, Really, it's a very common experience for patients. They won't talk about euphoria when you're using it for pain, but often they'll talk about energy. So energy in someone who's using opiate analgesics medically is not uncommon. So you sometimes need to dig in a little bit deeper because that becomes really important when you're helping patients understand risk. So if that medication also relieves their pain, and, and I always assume that patients who are using opiates medically are using it to manage their pain. But the question I love to ask them is, does the medication do anything else for you? And this is where the patient will often describe energy. So that is the psychological dependency. So we've got the physical dependency and psychological dependency, which is not addiction. Obviously, we know that. It's really how the body adjusts so that if I pull that medication away, what they're going to experience is withdrawal. What withdrawal feels like to a patient who's using it for pain is that they'll say, I have terrible pain. My pain is much worse. Or I feel horrible. I have no energy. I feel more um, more down uh, because they're not getting that energy lift. 
Uh, so that's important uh, recognition there. So the major complications of opiate use, I mean, we can think about constipation and nausea, which are expected. And they should be, we should be proactive. Sometimes patients will get sweating, uh, which can also be a problem. But the biggest complications I always try and manage are opiate-induced pain, right? So opiate-induced pain is when the, uh, the opiate can actually cause that uh, sensitization. Opiate addiction, which is a life-threatening complication of opiate use, right? It's not a moral failing of an individual. It's a complication. And if we're not managing that complication, that patient will be at risk. It's no different if I'm giving them warfarin and I'm not managing their INR and that patient has a major bleed, so which it can be a, a life-threatening condition uh, and complication of the Coumadin. So opioids, a life-threatening complication is addiction. And then there's opiate diversion. And diversion itself can have many, many uh, different uh, facets involved in that. So it can be about poverty. It can be about spousal abuse or elder abuse. There are lots of different factors that can be contributing, as well as putting it into the illicit marketplace. Or the patient may be struggling with another substance use disorder and is diverting that opioid into the community so that they can access that. So we know that the risk of opiate addiction uh, in when opiates are used to manage pain is very low. And this, this is a very interesting calculation that was done by a group of physicians looking at the risk. And we're talking about a very short-term use of opiate analgesics, you know, less than three days. That risk was actually very low. So that risk was the number needed to harm was about one in 7,000. So addiction, we need to recognize, takes time, it takes repetition, and it needs a vulnerable brain. Diversion, I would argue, especially early on, can be a, a concern. When we look at the risk in chronic pain, it's very different. So that risk increases uh, significantly. So the risk of dying uh, is about 1 in 500. The risk of harm is about 1 in 11. So with chronic use, you do have time, you do have repetition, and you do have a vulnerable brain. Diversion is still a concern in that population. So how long should opiates be used? Well, it depends. Uh, we know that tolerance happens in days, that dependency happens in days, and addiction takes a long time. It takes months. So what the recommendations are is that we should be using these opiates in a very short period of time. Uh, we should be using short-acting, non-euphoric uh, and give them very low quantities. So some of the studies looked at how many of these medications do patients on average use. And the evidence, uh, in particular, one study that looked at patients who were discharged with, with uh, acute fracture is that the patient used few as six pills. Uh, so that's something that we need to think about. So when we pull all this together and we want to look at how we would approach acute pain, I want to talk about a safe ED approach to acute pain. So this is really about reducing the risk of chronic pain and reducing the risk of opiate use disorder. So the most important thing is that we need to make the patient feel safe. We need to make them feel safe and to make them feel cared for. It is huge because this is where we're starting to address some of the issues around fear. We want to calm that worst case scenario thinking, right? So we want to be able to target that. We don't want to dismiss it. We want to focus in on that. We want to let them know that they're, they're being cared for. So make them feel safe and cared for, calm worst-case scenario thinking, address pain-specific fears, and pain-protective behaviors, right? So those are really important things as well. We want to examine them carefully for any new pathology or progression of a pre-existing disease. And when we want to look at treatment, we want to manage our treatment expectations. And if we're considering opiate analgesics, we want to dispense small quantities of short-acting, non-euphoric opiates over a short period of time. So a non-euphoric opiate for me would be morphine. Now, 
that becomes a problem if you've got a patient with renal insufficiency, but that's for another talk. But typically you're looking for those opiates that are non-euphoric. So let's just come back to Melissa. So remember Melissa way, way back. So she's the uh, the young girl that had significant pain in along her uh, surgical sites. That she had an open reduction internal fixation of her of her forearm, and uh, she just not getting better, getting much worse. So how did we approach her? So we start if we start with those talking points. It's really important that I, I listen and validate that suffering that she's experiencing. And I want to make sure that I'm examining her very carefully. I want to start to talk to her a little bit about those fears. So what is it that she fears most about this arm? So trying to dig a little bit deeper. And it doesn't take many questions to kind of uh, point those out. Uh, and also the observations. Uh, so one of the things that I said to her is that that the need to protect was very strong in her. And so that experience of pain was was obviously uh, significant. And that the fact that she was bringing that arm in close and sort of tucking herself in more than likely was contributing to some of that pain in the neck because she talked about how much pain she was getting in her neck. So sometimes patients are not able to make that connection because remember, they're in survival mode, right? So there's a huge amount of processing that may not happen because they are just trying to get through the moment. So we can start to look at some of those behaviors. We want to do some reframing, so looking at that cognitive behavioral therapy. So if I have access to someone that can help her start looking at that, then that's important. There are some great short five-minute courses you can do, like a five-minute CBT uh, interaction with a patient. So that's perfect in an emergency department. And I'll put some links to that. So we just recently had one of those courses that were being offered. I would highly recommend any healthcare professional to kind of tap into those types of programs. And then I would use some modalities like the ask, tell, ask, you know, just trying to kind of get a conversation going. So if I look at intervention, she's somebody that I might look at an OT around desensitization. And this is a really interesting uh, therapy. And I'm going to get an OT to come and talk about us about that. But that the basic theory... Uh, Therapy for desensitization would be mirror therapy. We haven't talked about that, but that's a really interesting therapy to think about. Other alternative therapies we could explore would be acupuncture. We could look at pharmaceuticals, so I might try a topical with her that has a little bit of amitriptyline or ketamine in it. And I may look at something like a tricyclic antidepressant at night for sleep. And then I would do some wrist stratification. So she is using a fair bit of cannabis. The emergency room is probably not the time to start talking about that. But we can have a little brief conversation as how that cannabis may actually start be starting to cause uh, some withdrawal and increasing agitation, really winding up that pain system. So that would be kind of the approach that I would use for her. So some of the talking points just a little bit further is that I might say to her, because her comment to me would be, you know, you think this is all in my head. And what I would say to her is that here's what I know. I know that what you feel is very real but it doesn't always mean dangerous or bad. So we can have severe pain without anything dangerous or bad. It doesn't make it any less real. So she needs to know that I believe her, but sometimes what we experience doesn't always correlate with damage and bad. So when pain doesn't go away, it can feel chaotic. Would you say that that's what you're feeling now? So sort of trying to legitimize what she's feeling. It's important for her to know that she's not causing damage by moving. It's how she moves that matters most. So if she's moving in a tuck position, that is something that will actually cause worsening pain for this patient. All right, so we're going to tie it together. We're getting sort of late into the podcast. And it's uh, so I'm going to summarize all of this information and just kind of go through this. So what you say and do matters, right? I think we understand that. 
I, I don't need to take that point home, but it's not so much about the things I give patients. It's how I really legitimize what they're feeling, how I interact with them. And our prime purpose in this life is to help others. And if I can't help them, at least I'm not going to hurt them. And this is the Dalai Lama that, that uses that quote. I, I really like that quote as well. So I want to get very good at talking with patients about pain. So I'm going to look at my local community. Is there any good resources? Like I said, this, this online five-minute course on cognitive behavioral therapy is a really good thing for all of us to do. So can, doing some of that intervention at the bedside. Helps with motivational interviewing. Uh, very important. So I want to reach out to, to anyone in my community that uh, if I'm not sure about how to approach this patient, I might even actually reach out to the surgeon just to have a conversation about what his thoughts are. So the patient just sees that we're really taking this seriously and we want to make sure we cover all of the bases. I want to care enough to set boundaries regarding high-risk pharmacology, so that's really important. I want to manage risk. If I, if I make a decision to use opiate analgesics, which I didn't use in this patient at this time, she's two months post-recovery, but I am concerned about her cannabinoid use, so we might uh, help her try to understand that risk and manage it. And what's important is that we never want a patient to tell us how to prescribe a dangerous drug. So never let a patient tell you how to prescribe a dangerous drug. The other thing that I want to look at is some harm reduction strategies, right? So I want to try and keep her safe. Now, I am, she is using her cannabis non-medically. This is something she's used for a long time to manage her anxiety, which we know will be problematic as well. So we might introduce that concept in the emergency room that it could possibly, she just needs to think about it. And if she gets angry at me, I said, look, the only reason I'm having the conversation is that I care about you. And I just want to make sure that, because uh, ultimately it's her journey in life, right? The decisions she makes, how she goes through life is hers. You are just a safe place to land. And what you're trying to do is help her to think about things differently. So this is where the motivational interviewing is in, and we're trying to help her reduce harm. So we'll stop there and uh, hope to talk to you again next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.